The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Uh, and welcome, everybody. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So good to see you. I hope you're all doing well uh, in your different parts of the world. G'day, Will, Korokot, Kim, Alex, uh, and everybody else who's there joining us. And I'm coming to Eric, how's it going? Uh, see, so you've got your, your camera working. Um, so I'm joining to you, joining you today, as always, from uh, Harris Park in Sydney, just near Parramatta, and this is the traditional land of the Baramadigal people of the Darug Nation, and we pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Uh, for the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been doing a series of uh, classes on the Parayana Vagga of the Sotanipata. And I've been reading through my translation of the Parayana Vagga and <clears throat> talking a little bit about the meaning of the text and how it's formed and why we've, why I've chosen to translate it in this way and so on. Uh, and this week we will continue with that. Now, the first week we looked mainly at the uh, introductory narrative and we noted the somewhat lowbrow uh, emphasis of the introduction to sort of get people involved and get people excited. And if if somebody was reading it and they were looking forward to having a good story about curses and black magic, they were probably going to be disappointed with the second part, which was all about very advanced states of meditation uh, and... <clears throat> Uh, throughout this, we are seeing a glimpse into the meditative culture uh, in the time of the Buddha, particularly how the Buddha responded to the meditative culture of the most, uh, what appear to be the most advanced of the Brahmanical rishis of the time. Uh, and clearly the uh, questions and the culture and the meditative culture around these discussions is reminiscent of uh, the teachings of the Buddha's uh, former teachers, Alara Kalama and Uddhagarama Putta, with a special emphasis on the dimension of nothingness, one of the formless attainments. Uh, and in addition, I would suggest that uh, it's likely that these, uh, generally that these Brahmanical Rishis were of the school of the uh, Upanishadic school, perhaps related to that of Yajnavalkya. A bit difficult to specify this exactly, and I'm sure there was a lot more diversity and richness to these cultures than even we're aware of. So I wouldn't want to sort of push this too far in terms of identifying the people, but just as a general affinity of ideas, there certainly is that. And I also suggested that one of the reasons for the framing of the narrative in the way we have it today is as a conversion narrative uh, and especially bringing the Dhamma to new lands. And so this is very interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Australia and most of you, many of you listening from the United States, uh, and, you know, these also are new lands where the Dhamma is being introduced to. And uh, in a similar way, we find ourselves having to uh, find a way of articulating the Dhamma that is going to somehow connect with the people in these different countries. So, of course, we're not going to do that in exactly the same way that was done in early Buddhism, but we could, it's still, I think, interesting to listen to how that was done and to see uh, what um, what things there are to learn from that. One of the overarching features of the conversion narratives in Buddhism is that it, the, the, the narratives are much more interested in incorporating and subsuming and relating to the things that they found in the other places rather than in replacing them. And so we see in Buddhist cultures today that it's very common. If you look in Sri Lanka, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a Devala at, the, at each temple or many of the temples, like a Hindu shrine. Uh, in Thailand, there's a, like a spirit house or something. In, 
in China than the Chinese Buddhism. It's, it's almost re- related to kind of folk Buddhism and so on. And it would be a mistake, I think, to imagine that these were sort of late accretions to Dhamma. In fact, I believe that right from the beginning that these things were part of the Buddhist culture. And they, what they do is that they express a relation of, uh, if you like, friendliness and connection with the beliefs and practices that are found around in a particular culture, rather than a very contestive and, um, <clears throat> uh, and aggressive relationship. So Buddhists have never felt that they had a need to sort of displace or replace or eliminate people who are believing and practicing other things. On the contrary, uh, our main motivation has always been to try to uplift people and free them from suffering. Now, that said, let us continue with uh, the discussion today. Uh, The chat is open. Please uh, ask uh, questions in there. I'm going to try to take it a little, little bit more slowly today and uh, leave the opportunity for you to ask questions uh, as you would like. So uh, let's begin with the next one of the series of questions. Oh, I should also just mention just like a kind of a meta comment on this is that, you know, what what we've got is a series of questions, right? It shows how important that is, that um, uh, the Buddha's the manner of the Buddha's teachings was shaped by the kinds of questions that people were asking him. So to be able to ask good questions is a uh, skill all in itself. So this is uh, number 5.8, the questions of Nanda. People say there are sages in the world, said Venerable Nanda. But how is this the case? Is someone called a sage because of their knowledge? or because of their way of life. Experts do not speak of a sage in terms of view, oral transmission, or notion. Those who are sages live far from the crowd, I say, untroubled, with no need for hope. As to those ascetics and Brahmins, said Venerable Nanda, who speak speak of purity, in terms of what is seen or heard or in terms of precepts and vows or in terms of countless different things, living self-controlled in that matter, have they crossed over rebirth and old age, good sir? I ask you, blessed one, tell me this. As to those ascetics and Brahmins who speak of purity in terms of what is seen or heard or in terms of precepts and vows or in terms of countless different things, even though they live self-controlled in that matter, they have not crossed over rebirth and old age, I declare. As to those ascetics and Brahmins who speak of purity in terms of what is seen or heard or in terms of precepts and vows or in terms of countless different things, you say that they have not crossed the flood, sage. Then who exactly in the world of gods and humans has crossed over rebirth and old age, good sir? I ask you, blessed one, please tell me this. I don't say that all ascetics and Brahmins, replied the Buddha, are shrouded by rebirth and old age. There are those here who have given up all that is seen, heard and thought and precepts and vows, who have given up all the countless different things, fully understanding, craving, free of defilements. Those people, I say, have crossed the flood. I rejoice in the words of the great hermit. You have expounded non-attachment well, Gautama. There are those here who have given up all that is seen, heard, and thought, and precepts and vows, and who have given up all the countless different things, fully understanding, craving, free of defilements. Those people, I agree, have crossed the flood. All right. So here um, uh, Nanda wants to ask about the idea of a sage, of somebody who's become free. Now, this idea of uh, a sage, uh, a muni, is a, I don't know, is it, I don't know if it's unique, but it certainly is a very characteristic feature of the Indian tradition. And from a very early time, even long before the Buddha, there was somehow this idea in the culture that it was possible for a human being to find some kind of transcendence, some kind of perfection. 
that it was possible to recognize the, the, the chains, the sufferings, the things that are binding us to this world, and through that recognition, by acting in the right way, to become free of them. Now, in a certain sense, that understanding is quite common sense and quite empirical because we've all seen that happen, at least to some degree. I mean, we've all been subject to some kind of suffering, some kind of uh, of being entrapped, and through some way we've been able to get free of that. Might only mean little things, but still, we have some idea of what that means. But the Indian tradition says that it's possible to do this completely, that, that this being of entrapment is not inherent to who we are as human beings. In fact, nothing is inherent to who we are as human beings. There's no such thing as having an inherent nature of any kind. And so if it's possible for us to be entrapped, then it's equally possible for us to be freed. So from a very early time, uh, people believed that there were these sages. Uh, and, of course, not easy to know who is a sage and who is not, who is really freed and who is not. Why do we believe this? Because of their knowledge, because of their way of life. And, you know, these are still similar kinds of criteria that we have today. We don't say that someone's a sage because of their view, because of oral transmission or their learning or because of a, uh, a notion. Now, I'm going to just comment a little bit on these terms here. In terms of view, I might actually revise that translation. I'm not sure if that view is correct there. I'm going to have to double-check that. In any case, um, uh, normally here when we have this dittya sutya nyanena, it means the what is seen. Oh, it's dittya, right. Again, I'm going to have to just review this a little bit. Normally what this means is in terms of seeing what's heard and what's known. And this is referring to the different kinds of uh, epistemological sources of knowledge that were recognized in ancient India. So these, these categories and these ideas are used extensively throughout the suttas, most characteristically in the Atagavaga, the previous chapter in the Suttanipata, but we're finding them we're also occur here in the Parayanavaga. So the vision, we see somebody who's a sage, they look like a sage, they strike us as being one. Yeah. It's still very powerful, isn't it? Very powerful thing to be able to see somebody and to recognize us as a sage. And because of oral transmission, because of their learning, because they have been part of a lineage. And again, very, very common these days, right? So and so on from such and such a lineage, so and so on from such and such a lineage, therefore they must be a sage, yeah? Or from a notion, <clears throat> uh, and this is the word jnana, normally translated as knowledge. But when we find it in this kind of usage in the Atakavaga, it's often used for a kind of mistaken understanding of things, a misrepresentation of things. And so I use uh, notion when it's used in this kind of sense. Uh, So sages live far from the crowd, untroubled with no need for hope. So nirasa, so the word asa is probably the closest word in Pali to what we would have uh, in the sense of uh, hope in English. It's not exactly the same, but it's still that idea that you're kind of, you're not longing to, re- to have to realise something in the future because you have already realised it. Um, <clears throat> precept and vows, of course, being uh, another um, of the criterion by which people are sometimes judged as being sages. Okay, so-and-so is very ascetic, so-and-so is keeping all of these precepts, so-and-so has these vows and so on, and these things can be very impressive. So the Buddha says that anybody who understands purity in this way uh, has not crossed over rebirth and old age. Okay, 
So if you believe that all of these things, your knowledge, your transmission, your tradition, your precepts, your vows and so on, if you believe that these things grant you purity, then you've not crossed over our old age. But then who has crossed over? So one of the things that this dialogue is getting to is that the things that we use to judge um, uh, spiritual practitioners are the things that are obvious, the things that are on the surface. But those things are (laughs) ridiculously easy to, to be fooled by. And as somebody who does this professionally, I can just tell you honestly as one of the tools of the trade that there is like nothing easier than fooling people who want to believe. And uh, I, I know, if, uh, once, you know, I can, I can tell you some of the tricks of the trade, if you like. Uh, for example, if you, uh, as a monk, uh, you meet somebody and you want to impress them, you just sort of silently nod and say, you meet someone for the first time, you silently nod, ah, we meet again. See, that's all it takes. And then they're going away. What does he mean? Has he seen us in past lives? Have we done this? Blah, blah, blah. And that's all you have to do. Right? And so it's ridiculously easy to convey these kinds of things. And uh, unscrupulous spiritual practitioners are doing this kind of thing all the time. Like it's literally going on. It's part of the business of religion and business of spirituality has been since the time of the Buddha. And it doesn't matter what, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's exactly the same all the time. And it's so easy, you know. I remember one time I was at this uh, temple in Singapore. I was doing a talk. And... Um, so it's kind of a, a fairly large temple in Singapore. This, you know, sometimes with these big places, you might have different people doing different kinds of things. So the people who invited me were kind of the, they were the, you know, the sutta and meditation group in the temple, and they wanted me to come and talk about meditation and so on and so forth. And so I was, you know, I was in the Dhamma Hall giving a, a, uh, a talk. And then at the back of the Dhamma Hall, you know, it's a large hall, so it wasn't interfering with us, but at the back of the Dhamma Hall, there was a monk who was, doing blessings and amulets. And as I was giving my talk, you know, I was just sort of keeping an eye out for what was actually going on at the other end, you know, and you could see like there was this line of people coming to see this monk, constant, constant line of people for the like of the whole hour, and each one he would uh, give some blessing, give us a short chant, sprinkle a bit of holy water uh, and give them an amulet and they would give him money. That's it. So they would give money and then they'd get this stuff in return. Okay, next, 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 next. It was just a purely (laughs) material relationship. And that's just how it worked. And you can see what these things, it's so easy to uh, slip into these kinds of things. So the Buddha uh, redefine somebody who's free, not in terms of the things you can identify, but in terms of what they've let go of. They've given up all of these different externals. They've given up all of these attachments. They've given up craving and they're free of defilements. These are the ones who have really crossed over the flood. So who is that? How do you tell? Well, not easy, right? Not easy. And still today, uh, people still wonder about these things and it's kind of a hot topic of conversation, who's enlightened and who isn't enlightened. And, you know, there's a, it's, it's easy to, not, to make a, a nice list of all of the red flags that are going to show you who isn't enlightened, not so easy to tell who is. Anyway, uh, I'm not sure if I can uh, solve this problem for any of you, but my only consideration would be to say, and the Buddha said, rely on yourself, rely on your own wisdom. There's nobody out there who is going to be able to save you. If you can find wisdom, it doesn't matter if you find it from a coffee mug or a fortune cookie or from a Dhamma talk or from the dog next door. It really doesn't, okay? You can find wisdom wherever it is. But you can also find delusion and attachment wherever they are. And you can go to all of the great teachers and do all of the great retreats and all of these things and then do nothing but increase your own attachments. 
And uh, so just try my, you know, just always try to encourage people just, you know, learn, learn the Dhamma, learn the simple principles of the Dhamma, and then just try to let go and be peaceful. Yeah. Don't, don't be in too much of a hurry. Don't try to skip things over. Don't be like, don't be um, caught up in the latest new thing, right? The latest kind of shortcut and the latest kind of method and all of these kinds of things. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> okay. Nancy's asked to have one of these suttas read through in Pali. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Sure. The movie, uh, Kim has mentioned the movie Kumare is about a man who plays at being a fake guru. He is shocked when he succeeds. <laughs> yes. Also, Monty Python's The Holy Grail being another one, right? So the, the, well, the, the Buddha's, Buddha's response there, so to answer Debbie, uh, the Buddha's response there is to, uh, to talk about whether a sage defines themselves in terms of their purity uh, through those different kinds of things. Uh, and uh, so a, uh, a sage is somebody who is pure, but they don't define their purity by those external things. Uh, advice on addressing charlatans. Yeah, not easy. You're not easy. There's a, there's a great, um, uh, I was just reading just yesterday, the great uh, uh, podcast and so on uh, of uh, Conspirituality, which if you're not familiar with uh, is really excellent and a really good resource. Uh, and I think one of the things to do with these things is to become familiar with the patterns because usually these things are pretty, like they're not, you know, you're not like dealing with the upper echelon here, right? I mean, they're, they're not, they're not like, they're not, you know, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, if, if, if you'll have sex with me, you'll get enlightened. You're like, I, I don't know. It doesn't feel like you have to sort of strive for great wisdom to be able to see through this kind of nonsense. You know, I mean, most of it is, most of it seems like pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, so, you know, have your own inner strength. Uh, don't be afraid to check in with people. Um, there are a lot of, a lot of frauds and uh, pseudo gurus around the place. Uh, and stick with the Dhamma and just be, just be cautious. Uh, but if we familiarize ourselves with kind of the means and methods of uh, cultish behavior, uh, then that can be, uh, I think that's really important. Um, okay. Okay. Let's go on to another, uh, so the next uh, sutta and, uh, I'll try doing something partly. Wow. Okay, so uh, we've got a nice short sutta, so I'll read this through in Pali, for, uh, in Pali and you can read the English as we go. Yeme pumbe vyakansu, itchayasma hemako, hurango tamasasana, itchasi iti bavisati, sabbang tang iti hiti hang, sabbang tang takawadhanang. Nahang tata abhiraming Twanch made hamamakahi Tarnhani ghatanangmuni Yang viditwa sato charang Tarelo ke visatikang Idhadita sutamuta vinyate su Pierupe suhemata Chandaraga vinodanang Nibbana padamachutam etadanya yayesata de adhamma bhinibhuta upasanta chate sada terna loke visatikanti. So there you go, there's the uh, Hemaka Manavapucha in, in Pali for you. All right, so uh, hopefully you were uh, reading uh, along with that. Uh, now, the uh, first part of this is a very interesting one, and this will uh, reappear at the end of the sutra as well. Kurango Dhammasasana, before Buddha's teachings, was thus it was or so it shall be. Asi iti bhavisati. All that was just the testament of hearsay. Iti hitihang. All of that just fostered speculation. I found no delight in it. So 
Hemika here, you know, I mean, Hemika has come from a Brahmanical background where, you know, studying under one of the great sages of the time, and he has no doubt devoted a large amount of his life to studying the Vedas, probably studying Upanishads, listening and studying to, I don't know, probably a lot of traditions that have been lost and we don't know anything about. And yet he says before he, until he came to Buddhism, that everything was just hearsay. Thus it was. Itjasi. Itibabisati. So it shall be. Now, so this is a really important perspective to notice. It's a perspective that uh, is echoed a number of times in the suttas that we find Brahmins uh, discussing their own tradition and having a variety of sometimes critical views about their own tradition. And it's not just in the suttas that we find that because we find similar discussions in the Brahmanical literature itself. And so we find uh, expressions of scepticism, of questioning and of doubting within that tradition as well. So it's really important to, to bear in mind that when we speak of a tradition, whether Buddhist tradition or uh, other traditions, that we're not talking about a monolithic block of people who just uncritically accept everything that's within the tradition. I mean, clearly, Hemaka found something worthwhile, you know, perhaps the, the lifestyle, perhaps his companionship, perhaps the support for meditation. But there was something at a root level which was really dissatisfying about what he had encountered within his own tradition. And, of course, this, that, that sense of missing and that sense of longing for some meaning uh, is, of course, we find that all around us today. I'm guessing, probably, most of you have been through something like that. Certainly that was the case for me that when, you know, you come to Buddhism and start reading Dhamma, practicing Dhamma and so on, that you begin to, for the first time, realize, oh, this is something that's talking about experience. It's not just a theory. It's not just a speculation. It's actually about the reality of how I'm living my life. And it's given me a capacity to be able to live better and become a better person. So these... um, uh, uh, that that spirit of inquiry and that spirit of questioning, that disillusionment with where you come from and that feeling of recognition, almost like coming home to Buddhism, this is something that we'll find recurs in the Parayanavaga, especially in the last chapter. So this one isn't actually really uh, quite a question. Um <clears throat> Uh, um, but the Buddha here uh, is kind of an implied question. So how do you destroy craving? Uh, the removal of desire and lust for what is seen, heard, thought, or cognized here. Ditta, sutta, mutta, vinyata. And once again, we find that similar list we saw in the last um, uh, the, the last set of poems. You may have noticed when I was reciting it that this particular line is hypermetrical. Uh, so they usually eight syllables: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So twelve syllables as opposed to the normal eight syllables. So I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Uh, Perhaps, um, yeah, I won't speculate too much, but just to notice that that particular line is uh, hypermetrical. It sounds a bit clumsy when you're reciting it. Yang viditva sato charang tare loke visatikang idhadita sutta muta vinyatesu dirupesu hemaka. So it's quite noticeably uh, quite longer and different rhythm. Okay, for today... um, So today, another interesting question. An interesting question here, subtle one. In whom sensual pleasures do not dwell, said Venerable Todeya, and for whom there is no craving, and who has crossed over doubts, 
of what kind is their liberation, right? Okay, so the Buddha is talking about all of these things, which are like the qualities of uh, of an enlightened sage, right? So they've got they let go of all their attachments and they don't have any more craving, they crossed over their doubts, all of these things, that's fine. But then what is that freedom? What is that state of freedom that you're talking about? What do you actually realize as a result of that? The Buddha's response, in whom sensual pleasures do not dwell, replied the Buddha, and for whom there is no craving and who has crossed over doubts, their liberation is none other than this. Vimoko tasa naparo. So this is a, a slightly tricky translation. Um, another another possible reading would be their their liberation is one from which there is no return. But I don't think that's what the sense is there. The point that the Buddha is making here is that there's not like another thing which is the liberation. It's the freedom from those things that is itself the liberation. So again, to contrast with uh, other uh, metaphysical or religious systems where you might say, well, I will become free of my worldly attachments and then I will achieve union with Brahma. And so, so for Buddhism, it's that we become free of those attachments and it's the state of what we call Nibbana is not like a separate state that you go to when you're free of attachments. Nibbana is simply a word that we use to describe that state of freedom from attachments. Are they free of hope or are they still in need of hope? Do they possess wisdom or are they still forming wisdom? Osakyan, elucidate the sage to me so that I may understand all seer. It's a manta chakku. So <clears throat> here, uh, Tadeya, again, not quite clear about the notion of the sages. Are they still growing? Are they still learning things? This comes back to the point that I made a little bit earlier about the nature of a realized one, that there is this kind of conception that there is, I guess, an end of the road, that there is a state of perfection and a state of freedom. Normally, of course, we think as human beings that to still be have hope, to still be looking to the future, to still be longing for better things is part of our nature as humanity. And it seems hard to imagine what it would be like if you were like, actually, no, I'm not longing for better things. Yeah, this is fine. Just as it is. Yeah. And a similar thing with learning knowledge. Panyanava, so the Panyakapi. Again, Panyakapi is a slightly difficult uh, word to translate here. I think I've got a footnote. Uh, yeah, so there, anyway, you can read the little uh, footnote that I've got there. Um, so Kapi, uh, I'm taking it in terms of uh, Kapi, the idea of forming, creating, or making. So are they somebody who is in the process of forming wisdom? Are they growing um, uh, or do they already have it? And again, it seems, it seems almost a bit kind of arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, normally we think that humanity, to be humble, that we, we always should be in a state of growing. And, of course, you know, normally that's, that's true, right? We should always be wanting to learn and wanting to grow. So it doesn't mean that an enlightened person can't learn anything. Obviously, they can still learn things. But in terms of what matters for their spiritual freedom, they're not sort of growing or evolving spiritually in that way. They've already reached that state of freedom. Or at least this is the question. So the answer, the Buddha's answer, they are free of hope. They're not in need of hope. And so this idea that hope as something which is bound to the future uh, contains within it the seeds of fear. If we are hoping for a better future, then we are dissatisfied with our present and we are afraid of a worse future. Whereas somebody who is truly freed 
They're content now, and they'll also be content in the future. They possess wisdom. They are still not, not still forming wisdom. That Todeya is how to understand a sage who has nothing unattached to sensual life. So here the Buddha is making a strong claim for his notion of what a sage is. Questions of the student Kappa. So I should, I don't think I mentioned before, but each of these is called the Manava Pucha. So the Kappa Manava Pucha, the questions of Kappa and Kappa and Manava uh, is a word meaning a student or Brahmanical student. Literally, it means a follower of Manu. Uh, so many of you have probably heard of Manu, the mythological first man in uh, in Hindu, Hindu or Brahmanical mythology. So Manava is like a follower of Manu. <clears throat> All right. Now, um, Kappa's questions are less philosophical, more existential. For those overwhelmed by old age and death, said Venerable Kappa, stuck midstream as the terrifying flood arises. Tell me an island, good sir. Explain to me an island so that this may not occur again. For those overwhelmed by old age and death, replied the Buddha, stuck midstream as the terrifying flood arises, I shall tell you an island, Kappa. Having nothing, taking nothing, this is the isle of no return. I call it extinguishment, the ending of old age and death. Those who have fully understood this, Mindful are extinguished in this very life. They don't fall under Mara's sway, nor are they his lackeys. All right, so this is uh, quite a famous one. Uh, the imagery of the, the flood uh, and overcoming the flood is an often quoted uh, verse. Uh, it's not, um, you know, not a, uh, it's not a comforting image. Uh, and particularly uh, spoken in uh, India where flooding is quite a regular occurrence, certainly in the Ganges Valley uh, it is because of the, the uh, runoff from the snowmelt from the Himalayas. Uh, so we, we regularly find uh, stories of travellers getting caught in floods. So an island or a refuge so that this may not occur again. Naparansitasya. One of the characteristics of the Buddha's teachings and the way the Buddha responds to people is that he, um, he doesn't minimize or dismiss their fears and uh, experiences. Uh, and, you know, sometimes when we're put in this kind of situation, our, uh, our, sort, of, our sort of compassionate response might be to think, oh, well, we need to comfort somebody. We need to say, oh, look, you know, they're there, it's okay, it's not really that bad, you know, you'll be all right, I'm sure everything will be okay. And so we give these kind of comforting words when somebody expresses uh, a state of terror, depression, anxiety, fear, and all of these overwhelming emotions which people have. And so one of the problems there is that when we give people sort of um, uh, generic words of comfort in those circumstances, we're not really hearing the what they're talking about in a sense where in a sense we're implying well you're going through a bit of emotion now and just just calm down and everything will be okay and look of course, obviously that's in there are plenty of occasions when that's a perfectly you know fine valid way to do it you know but when the Buddha is responding here, you notice that he's not minimizing Kappa's experience. Kappa is clearly expressing this existential fear. Yeah? 
this existential fear reminds me of the uh, Atadanda Sutta in the Atakavaga where the Buddha speaks in a similar way of his own experience of existential fear and terror before, uh, while he, before he went forth and one of the things that drove him to go forth. So this idea that we're surrounded by a world which is shifting and where there's no stability and looking for something that we can find some stability on. Now, while the Buddha uh, affirms and shows Kappa that he is listening to him and taking him seriously rather than dismissing him, he also, he's not, the Buddha is not like, um, the Buddha is not, uh, how do I put this? The Buddha is not extreme about this. Like he could have said to him, yeah, it's overwhelmed by old age and death. Everything is impermanent. Deal with it, Right. This is another, he could have gone to that approach of being like overly harsh, right? Yeah, that's just how the world is. Everyone's going to die. Get used to it. And sometimes, you know, it's tempting to speak in that way as well. But the Buddha doesn't. He says, yes, I shall tell you an island. You are right. Yeah, this is terrifying. And all of these things that are happening genuinely are scary. And, and I shall also tell you an island. Very, very psychologically skillful approach. What is that island, that place of solidity, right? That's an island, right? Dry land, something solid. Oh, having nothing, taking nothing. This is the isle of no return. I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound all that solid. So the Buddha is offering him this island, but when he defines the island, he defines it purely in terms of negatives. I call it extinguishment, nibbanang itinang brumi, the ending of old age and death. So again, the Buddha's rhetorical style here, uh, always when he's speaking about nibbana, right? If you want want the, 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 the most simple and powerful key to understanding how the Buddha spoke about Nibbana in the suttas. I'll give it to you. The Buddha spoke about Nibbana. When the Buddha spoke about Nibbana, it was always psychologically positive and ontologically negative. It's psychologically positive and ontologically negative. It's an island in the stream. It is blissful. It is the the place, a state of peace, it is a state of freedom and all of these very attractive things that's going to make you feel like you want it. But then when you try to say what it is, ontologically, well, it's nothing, taking nothing. It's, it's not born. It's not aging. It's not dead. And so there's this always these negatives about what Nibbana actually is. So Nibbana is psychologically positive, and ontologically negative. <clears throat> Those who have fully understood this, mindful, are extinguished in this very life. They don't fall under Mara's sway, nor are they his lackeys. And again, just a sort of a passing note, I guess, but, you know, it's always interesting that uh, how often mindfulness is mentioned throughout these verses and, you know, throughout the suttas always. I mean, of course, there are plenty of other uh, virtues and so on which are mentioned as well, but... Um, you know, that simple practice of mindfulness that we all try to do, right? And we all try to practice mindfulness. We know what it is we, as we're sitting here, I hope we are being mindful of our posture, being mindful, trying to be present, being mindful of our mood. And that simple practice of mindfulness, again, here the Buddha is saying is characteristic of somebody who's freed from old age and death. Okay, so... Okay, so I've uh, got a few uh, comments here. Thanks, everybody. Korokot says, seems to go in the nature, direction of the nature of liberation. That is very true. Eileen says, having nothing, taking nothing, seems to advise us to let go of possessions as we age. Yes, definitely. And so those words are, uh, you know, they do have that dual meaning. They definitely mean like having no possessions uh, as well as letting go of uh, attachments, yeah? And, uh, yeah, as we get older, it's easy to accumulate stuff. Um, but that's more and more important to be able to let go of things as well. 
so Josh says, is extinguishment the go-to translation of choice for Nibbana and insights into his choice? Yes, well, that's how I translate it. There are obviously a number of different translations. Uh, extinguishment is a pretty literal translation. I usually use extinguishment, although I sometimes waver with quenching, and I use that occasionally. That's K.R. Norman's uh, translation. So these are both fairly literal translations. The main metaphorical basis for the idea of Nibbana, of course, is the going out of the flame. Uh, we saw that uh, last week with the questions of Upasiva. Uh, and so many times that idea of Nibbuta being the, the going out and the extinguishment of a flame. Uh, so um, in just a, a sort of a note on translations, in, in my uh, translation project, I decided to try to translate every single word into English rather than leaving technical terms and so on in Pali. And one of the reasons for that is because uh, words have meanings that are not like Pali words have meanings that are not necessarily the same today as they were then. So even like a word Nibbana is such a, a, a pregnant term. Right? You can leave that word in there. Everyone knows you're talking about Nibbana, but what everyone understands Nibbana to be, of course, can be very different things. Another good example of that is the word Bodhisattva. And if you Google Bodhisattva, it will tell you the meaning of Bodhisattva is somebody who delays their own enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Whereas in the suttas, the bodhisattva is specifically somebody who goes home, goes forth from home in order to seek their own enlightenment. And so it's actually quite a different kind of meaning. So this is why I always try to translate everything rather than uh, leave it in the Pali. Uh, Eric asks, is the psychologically positive only applicable to Nibbana with residue? I wasn't really meaning that Nibbana itself is psychologically positive. It's more talking about the way that it's talked about. So it's talked about in a way that's attractive, right, that makes you think, oh, that sounds good, yeah? draws you in. Yeah? So the Buddha has this kind of way of drawing you in and then pulling the rug out from you when you're there, right? Oh, yes, that sounds good. It's, 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 it's blissful and it's safe and it's happy. Oh, there's nothing there. Whoop. And then you're, oh, okay. So that's more, the, uh, it's more, it's more talking about the manner in which the Buddha discussed Nibbana. <clears throat> Mike mentions that the simile is a little confusing. He would have thought Nibbana was the far shore and an island would be just a temporary resting place. Of course, that uh, comment by Mike uh, having far more poignancy given the fact that he's writing from New Zealand uh, and... <laughs> um, <coughs> Uh, um, yeah, look, yeah, sure. I mean, it's just a simile. Uh, but, you know, the Buddha is just responding to that, um, that particular thing. But generally speaking, an island is, is, is used in the suttas as a place of safety, after Deepang, yeah. having nothing. Uh, I wonder if having nothing, taking nothing speaks to the culture he's addressing. Yeah, I'm sure it does. And, I mean, remember that, that Akinchana, the same word, was used in the introduction of Bhavari, right? So his teacher was described as being a Brahmin who had nothing. And so through the whole thing, it has actually those different meanings, having no possession, also the meditation on nothingness, and here also of Nibbana as well. So clearly it was an important word, it's an important idea for these particular uh, Brahmins. Okay, so uh, let's go ahead and uh, we'll read one more uh, set of questions before we wrap up for today. Okay, so this is the questions of Jatu Kandi. Hearing of the hero with no desire for sensual pleasures, said Venerable Jatu Kandi. Who has crossed over the flood? I've come with a question for that desireless one. Tell me the state of peace, O oh, natural visionary. Tell me this, blessed one, as it really is. Bit of a comment here. The exact sense of the unique term sahaja netta is open to interpretation. Surely Norman's omniscient one uh, following the day, so it's not right. So the term here is sahaja netta. Sahaja netta meaning uh, one who sees, like a netta being an eye. Uh, sahaja 
is an interesting term, saha meaning together, ja meaning literally born. So sahaja meaning born together. So the visionary one born together. Hmm. But sahaja is also used in the sense of being something which is nature or natural. So I've translated as natural visionary. Um, and, you know, that, but, it's, but that, that idea of nature as being sahaja is also, I think, quite a nice idea, right? So it's the idea that nature is something where everything is born together, everything arises and is dependent on. Um, okay, so I'll just I'll finish up with this one that I'm doing. Uh, and here we go. Uh, sound. Okay, great. Sahaja Neta. Okay, we're good. All right. Um, so, yes, the natural visionary, the Sahajaneta. For having mastered sensual desires, the Blessed One proceeds as the blazing sun shines upon the earth. Uh, may you of vast wisdom explain the teaching to me of little wisdom so that I may understand the giving up of rebirth and old age here. I love these, this verse here. I love the humility of it. Remember that these are these are these are accomplished great sages who've been practicing, learning, studying, and meditating for so many years. And this is the the, the attitude that he brings when he sees the Buddha. He says, "Oh, I've come, I've come to the Buddha. May you parita panya guri panya." And he's not he's not being like excessive about it or anything like that. Just saying, you know, I've, I've finally found somebody who understands. Please tell me so that I can understand. The sensual desire dispelled, said, replied the Buddha, seeing renunciation as sanctuary. Don't be taking up or putting down anything at all. Um, okay, so just a few comments on this uh, line. Nekamandatu um, kemato is a line that we see a few uh, times in the um, uh, suttas. Uh, uh, a bit of an unusual line linguistically, datu is to see, ke, uh, uh, kemato is as sanctuary, it's an ablative form here. Now the word kema is usually translated as safety or security, but kema is actually not dissimilar to the deeper as the island. It's actually a place of safety and refuge and originally was probably the oasis which was reached at the end of a day's journey by the Indo-European wanderers. So a kema is a place where the animals and the people will live in harmony, where there is water, where there is food, where there is plenty. And so kema has these very beautiful connotations of safety and ease and sanctuary. Uh, don't be taking up or putting down anything at all. Now, this idiom of taking up or putting down, is extremely reminiscent of the Atikavaka and is one of the most characteristic uh, uh, forms which we find throughout the Atikavaka in slightly different ways. Uh, one of the things that I learned in my translation of the Atikavaka was that we have to be very careful about how we're phrasing this. These are uh, past participle forms, and if we translate them with, I think, excessive grammatical literalness, we would say uh, nothing has been taken up or put down, uh, which seems a bit weird, right, because we know the Buddha is always saying, well, we should, we should put things down, we should let go of things. Um, but in fact, in all these cases, and we can see this by looking at the variety of uses of similar idioms through the Atikavaka, that these are past participles that used in a present perfect sense. So what they mean is that we are not engaged in that process of having of taking things up and putting things down. And so a, uh, an arahant is somebody who has already put everything down. And so they're no longer uh, going and taking the example, putting all things down. <clears throat> so this is this is an idiom which took me a long time to get my head around, actually. 
And it was always something for me when I had read previous translations of these verses that had always been a bit puzzling to me. Uh, and so it took me quite a while to actually figure out what was going on. What came before, let wither away, so say he. And after, let there be nothing. Mahu kinchana. And again, this idea of kinchana, right? Let there be nothing, a kinchana. Madhiness. If you don't grasp at the middle, you will live at peace. So we already uh, saw um, in one of the previous sets of questions this idea of the two ends and the middle. Uh, here we're finding the same idea in a slightly different form. Uh, and in this particular case, it seems that the part, the one extreme is the past, another extreme is the future, and the middle presumably is the present. And if you if you recall, in that previous case, when we looked at that uh, series of questions of the past, the one extreme, the other extreme, the middle, that this was actually one of the interpretations that was offered for that even though it wasn't the actual interpretation in that context, wasn't the intended meaning in that context, but it was still one possible interpretation. But here uh, it's more explicitly that this is what's being meant. One rid of greed, Brahman, for the whole realm of name and form, has no defilements by which they might fall under the sway of death. So, uh, again, notice the use of the term name and form, Nama Rupa. Many of you will be familiar with the concept of Nama Rupa as it's spoken about in Buddhism, but I think it's really important to bear in mind that it is, in fact, a Brahmanical term. And we'll find it a number of times through uh, the Varayanavaka, a number of times in the Upanishads. And so clearly it's a case where the uh, the Buddha was adopting and responding to that Brahmanical usage. Uh, And in this kind of case, uh, you know, I I, I wouldn't look to, I wouldn't sort of insist on a particularly technical understanding of what my name form means. In this particular case, really what it means is just that whole world of phenomenal reality, everything that we know and see and experience and think of and name, and this whole kind of world of appearances that we're surrounded. All right. Uh, so, uh, approaching uh, near the end, uh, I'll just see if there's there's one more question here from Josh. Let me uh, okay. Can the names of any of the questioners be translated, or they're kind of like American names, not really having much apparent meaning? Uh, wonder it, or, or English names, even perhaps. But anyway, wonder if the term where internet connection was lost, the term uh, the internet was lost, that's the uh, Sahaja Neti, alludes to understanding the relationship with seeing objects of sight and contact. Yeah, I'm not sure. Like I said, it's a bit difficult to, to nail that one down. Although, I mean, the interesting thing is that it was, it was spoken to the Buddha, my Brahman, so it does suggest that it perhaps was one of those very many terms, epithets, was that I used in the, in the culture. It's hard to say. Uh, if the theme of taking up or putting nothing down speaks to the theme of no-thingness or that you're talking about the meditation on it, I think it can do, although in these cases it's more talking about Nibbana. But just to come back to the point about the names, uh, it's actually quite common in Pali that names will have a it will be more of a kind of epithet than uh, than they are really in in English. So the names have you know the names have have that kind of um, they retain more of the sense of the meaning of them. Um, and in in a number of cases, it's quite common in Pali that names are given which are clearly kind of back formed as an epithet from the story that they're attached to uh, and a good example of this is the various Bharadvajas which we find in the suttas the Bharadvaja being a common Brahmanical name and it seems to be used as a kind of a generic term for Brahmins and uh, then attached to the, uh, the, the kind of thing that we find them doing. So, for example, if you have a, 
Brahmin who's yelling abuse, then they're called Akosaka Bharadvaja, the, the, the abusive Bharadvaja. If they're Bharadvaja, if they're doing a fire ceremony, then they are Agika Bharadvaja, the Brahmin Bharadvaja doing a fire ceremony and so on. So a lot of the times, um, yeah, there is that tendency to use these kind of epithets where we find names. But also, obviously, not all the time. And, uh, you know, the Buddha's name, Gautama, means dark cow, literally. But I don't think anybody was thinking of dark cows when they used the word Gautama. Yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. Well, we've managed to make it through another uh, lesson, uh, and we're doing pretty well on the uh, apocalypse meter right now. Like in Australia, there's no floods, no fires. It's kind of mild pandemic situation, so not too bad. Hopefully that will uh, <laughs> remain similar for the next week. Hopefully the world won't completely come to an end before we can have our next class. I mean, look, if the world's going to come to an end, we might as well study Dhamma and practice Dhamma, right? I mean, what else is there to do? So I hope that you all stay well and I hope that you all uh, find something of uh, uh, usefulness and some wisdom, some joy to find from the Buddha's teachings and I wish you all the best and look forward to seeing you.